We're looking this morning at the subject, the joy of sanctification, the makeover in which the Spirit of Christ begins to make us fit for glory. And we begin with definition. You'll notice in your bulletin outline, defining sanctification. Let me say it this way, brothers. We cannot always get away from the technical terms of Scripture, nor should we want to. Sanctification is one of those big words that is chock full of meaning. And if we try to um, kind of water it down, uh, we will miss a lot. The basic meaning, if we were just to look at the English meaning of the word sanctification, it's based upon the Latin sanctus. I'm sure you've heard that. Which means holy. To set apart as holy to consecrate, to purify, or to make free of sin. There are many parallel terms that come off of that. Sanctity, a sacred place or purpose. We speak of the sanctity of marriage and how that should be preserved. This room that you're sitting in, is known as the sanctuary, the most sacred part of a religious building, or it can mean a place immune from the law, a sanctuary, a place where we can come aside and be saved. The word sanctum means a study or an office dedicated to privacy, to contemplation, to meditation, particularly private place. This is my sanctum. This is where I go to be alone, to think, to pray, to meditate. Now that's just from the English word. When we come to the Greek word, it's even more enlightening. The Greek word means to recognize or consecrate something or someone as being hallow, that is holy. To separate from that which is profane or secular. We don't have that in the English use of the word. Maybe, kind of. But it's actually stated in the Greek term. To separate from that which is profane or secular. To cleanse, get this now, both externally and internally from whatever would defile or pollute morally. You see how much stronger the Greek word is, how deeper the meaning. The Bible lays great emphasis on the separation, the distinction that the Holy Spirit is working within us and on us to distinguish us from the common crowd. Look at verse 1 and 2 of our text, 1 Peter 1. It says there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout. Now, I ask the question, why strangers in the world? Well, let Jesus answer. If you belong to the world, he said to his disciples, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world And that is why the world hates you. John 15, verse 19. Okay, why the expression scattered throughout, which Peter uses? Well, it is an indicator that we are among the minority. We are a sparse people. Yes, innumerable hosts, says the book of Revelation, But when the numbers are all counted, um, we will be a remnant of the race, redeemed by God's grace. Now, it is sanctification which creates a disconnect from the world. It makes us strangers to the world's philosophy of life, which, of course, affects behavior. 
Peter puts it this way. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And then he lists some things. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. Now, who are these they that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about our former soulmates. But we, we were soulmates in sin. That's what he's talking about. He says, if I want to review your past, this is the way you lived. Your soulmates were involved in all of this kind of wickedness. And now they heap abuse on you because you're no longer running with the crowd. He goes on. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. 1 Peter 4. Verses 3 through 7. Peter is demonstrating here that sanctification has not only to do with the soul, but with the body. Men sin with their bodies. We were talking about that in the adult class this morning, the importance of body. Christians are called to be holy, that is, separated from the world in how they use their bodies. And when I say that, our minds go to a number of things. Probably first off, up sexual sins. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The body, here it is, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What a wonderful statement. Then it goes on. Here's our responsibility. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, verse 18. So our minds go to that when we think of, hmm, sins done by the body. What about speech sins? Speech sins. James writes, the tongue is a small part of the body. It makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of iniquity among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. James 3, verse 5 and 6. Now, no thinking Christian would believe it appropriate for a holy people to use their mouths for curses, obscenities, slander, backbiting, gossip, and the like. But, for many professing Christians, sanctification seems to have passed by these things and left them as untouched and as worldly as before conversion. Not good. Speech sins. What about thought sins? Paul writes, So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He goes on. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. 
There's knowledge and then there's knowledge. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 20. So sexual sins, speech sins, thought sins, these we pretty well agree on, even if we're guilty of some of these things in our life, that holiness or sanctification means that we must be at work cleaning up our behavior in these obvious areas of pagan lifestyle. I think in our saner moments, we, um, we're committed to that. We, if, if we're not doing a very good job about it, we at least know we're not doing a good job about it. And I think we experience a shame, a shame in our hearts and in our lives because we know we could be better and should be better. But now secondly, what about some of the not so obvious conformity that we have in our lives to the profane and the secular. Here I'm asking you to think a bit deeper. What about dress and appearance? Now as soon as I say that, as soon as we hear that, our minds go immediately to a text like 1 Timothy 2, Verse 9 and 10, which says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Or we go to Peter, our author for our text this morning, but the third chapter, and he says, Your beauty, ladies, should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 1 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. Now, these are all worthy admonitions because Solomon reminded his adult sons of the wicked women of his day saying this, Out came a woman to meet him dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the square, at every corner she lurks. Proverbs 7, verse 10 and following. Yeah, he, he says there are people that can dress like a prostitute. Maybe they're not, but they dress that way. Listen to God's indictment to Jerusalem, to His people. To His people. Not the guy on the street, not the unsaved person. To His people. This is what He says. The Lord says, The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling from their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on their heads, on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and the headbands and the crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and the charms, the signet rings and the nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and the cloaks, the purses and the mirrors and the linen garments, the tiaras and the shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. In other words, they're going to go into slavery. Isaiah 3, verse 16 through 24. What's going on here? They are dressing, they are adorning themselves like the women of the culture. That's what's going on. No separation, no distinction. But, now here we go, are not the men of our days in guilty of similar things as well? 
What about body piercing? What about tattoos? Leviticus 19 verse 20 says, Do not cut your bodies or put tattoo marks on yourself. I'm the Lord. Most people, most Christians don't even know that verse is in the Bible. But there it is. Leviticus 19 verse 28. What is God saying? He's saying, the world does these things, but you need to be separate from those things. He goes on. You are the children of the Lord. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be His treasured possession. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 and 2. That's, that's your distinguishing mark. You'll remember it was the demoniac of Gadara of whom we read, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Mark 5, verse 5. Yeah, well, why did he do that? Because he was devil-filled, that's why. It's part of, he was inspired by the spirit that opposes God. Revelation 14, 9 and following, we read, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Revelation 14, verse 9 through 12. You see, God does not see these things as being innocent. He doesn't see these things as being harmless. These are the things pagan do, pagans do as a means of adornment. And oftentimes in protest against the accepted values of society. You've seen some of those tattoos, I'm sure. They almost look like um, uh, what a, a man's concepts of demons crosses with grotesque figures on them and skull bones and all kinds of obscenities written. Do you know that God claims your body? He claims your body for himself. Let me read it for you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You can't just say, it's my body, I can do with it what I want. He's saying, you're, it's not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. So in the area of dress and appearance, we have a work of sanctification that must be maintained. What about friends and associates? As another one that's not so obvious. We wrestle all the time with this issue. Can we truly be friends with the people of the culture? Think about that. Friends do things together. They think similar thoughts. They share philosophies on child rearing, on work, on family. They eat together. They play together. They shop together. They vacation together. The list is almost endless. What friends do with one another. But if sanctification involves at its root separation unto God, then God's word must have an important say about our social life. And it does. Jesus told his disciples that he had chosen them out of the world. And that is why the world hated them. And he went on to say that the world hated him before it ever hated them. And so Jesus 
While eager to do the work of an evangelist in giving the gospel to the pagans of his day, nevertheless maintained a separation in life that Hebrews 7 verse 26 states, meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He's very careful how the Lord uh, governed his interaction with people. Jesus' brother, James, warns us, don't you know, hello Christians, get this, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, here it is. He goes on. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. Paul gets really serious when he says this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or... What fellowship, it's the same Greek word we see everywhere in Scripture, koinonia, what fellowship, what partnership can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial's a, a name for Satan. Here, if you just get this one phrase, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? If you just took that one phrase from this text, that's a good one to hang on to. What agreement is there between the temple of God, here we're back to the body, and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18. Modern day churches have totally ignored this admonition. I'm telling you right now. They have called themselves seeker-friendly. Seeker-friendly churches. And in the name of evangelism, they have tailored their church services with the casual dress of Sandlot football players, to the music of MTV, to abbreviated 15-minute homilies instead of scripture-convicting sermons, to plays, to Hollywood-style productions, all with the hope of impressing sinners with Christ. But you know what has happened? Jesus has been lost in the parade. He has been lost in the glitz. God has not called you to adapt to the world. Worse, to adopt the world for your church. When that happened in the New Testament, Jesus had this to say, spoken to the church of Pergamum in the Revelation. I have a few things against you, he said. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, false prophet, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to those who receive it. Revelation 2, 14 through 17. The Pergamon church is alive and well in our culture. They imbibe this philosophy, that philosophy. They dumb down this and that. They bring in the world in terms of entertainment, teaching, philosophies, and so forth. And then they say, we're a church of Christ. We belong to Christ. We love Jesus. Well, there's the Jesus of the Bible, and there's the Jesus of their imagination, and we ought to make the distinction. 
So for the new year, I am charging you, get to know the people of the church. Make them your friends. Work together on God-honoring projects. Plan and sing, yes, but plan and sing music that will glorify God. Plan and sing music that is distinctively Christian and not to enhance the performer. Invite church members to dinner. Plan your outings with God's people. Think of recreation in terms of spiritual edification and interaction with people of the faith. This is all part and parcel to a sanctified life. Let me read it for you from 1 Thessalonians. But since we belong to the day, says Paul, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. The hope of salvation is a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8-11. through 11. You know what, if I put this in the vernacular, this is what Paul is saying. Jesus did not call us to become butter popcorn, Hershey chocolate, and candy cotton to the world. He didn't. No, he said, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. Except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Matthew 5, verse 13. And Luke's account adds this. Salt is good, but, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. He who has an ear, let him hear. You see that? That's the same kind of phraseology we read in the Revelation when God comes and confronts his local church and says, you know, you're living outside the pale of true holiness. If you have an ear, I want you to hear this. You're the salt of the earth. And it is the holiness of sanctification that preserves the families and the culture of the unbelieving. They don't know that, but you ought to know that. Paul says that so long as a believing spouse sticks with his or her Marriage to an unbelieving spouse. Here's what he says. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. That's that salt effect on society. I mean, the original root of society, which is the family. Mary Poppins' philosophy, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, may seem the way to go when it comes to the gospel message. But the sugar fest of anemic cocoa puffs is just so much spiritual fluff that will damn people's souls in the end. So let us be salt and light in an uncompromising way for the new year. A tremendous responsibility. You are the salt. You're the light of the world. Now that brings us then to some applications. Point B. Sanctific sanctification resolutions for a joyful or blessed Christian experience. I'm going to give you four this morning. Number one. First, you're thinking about New Year's resolutions. Number one. Resolve to conform to the thinking, the speech, and the behavior of Christ, your Lord. Your Lord. Jesus put it this way. It's just a simple phrase. It's so wonderful. He says, it's enough. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Wow, what is, 
but a simple phrase, how wonderful that is. No long list of do's and don'ts and all of those kind of things. He's just saying, it's enough. You've done enough. You're doing your best. If you just are like your master. He goes on. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, that means Lord of the Flies, it's a slang for Satan, how much more the members of his household? You're part of his house, you're going to be called names. Get used to it. So, it might get more dangerous, he goes on. Do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10. Verse 25 through 28. Get your fears straight. Get your love straight. But get your fears straight too. Fear God over man. You know, one of the reasons that we dress the way we do and speak the way we do and associate with the unbelieving in compromising ways is because we cannot bear the thought of not fitting in. We do not want to be the odd man out. So we dress the same, we think the same as far as what we're going to display. We play the same, we speak it the same way because we want to fit in. You see, sameness is pleasant. Odd is unpleasant. Sameness is acceptance. Odd is rejection. Sameness is non-threatening. Odd is very threatening. Sameness is stability. Odd is uncertainty because we never know what will happen to us next. That's why we like sameness. Peter's point is, you have spent enough time in the past Doing what pagans do. 1 Peter 4 verse 3. And that really is a call to leave such things in the past. and Start living as the salt and light modeled for us in the life of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 5, John, excuse me. John 8, verse 12. Verse 2 of our text says that we are a cho we are, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for, for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what you were chosen for. Verse 5 says we're shielded. By God's power until salvation's day is completed. Verse 7 says that the trials that we experience are to prove our faith genuine, resulting in praise to God. So even the trials have a sanctifying work to do. So my point is stop worrying about fitting in with the world. Take your stand with Christ. Conform to Jesus' thinking, Jesus' speech, and then Jesus' actions. Let the chips fall where they may. Second resolution, resolve to cultivate friends and associates with, within the believing community. We have it in our text, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Now that's more than superficial, isn't it? Deeply, from the heart. Wow. He returns to the theme. The next chapter, chapter 2, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God, honor the king. You want it from Paul? 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Romans 12, verse 10 and 11. All these guys are writing about loving the brethren. And you know what? The apostle John made this a, he made this a test of faith. This is the way he put it. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And if that weren't bad enough, he goes on to say, anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3, verse 14. Ooh, ooh, ooh. This is very serious. May I say that such love for the brethren has practical proof. In verse 16 of 1 John 3, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our, brother, for our brothers. This is how tenacious we are to be in cultivating friends within the church. Think, also of the brotherhood at large. We have an association of churches to which our church belongs. <clears throat> and in the next few months, we have some events coming up. One month away, not, not even that. The winter blast for ages 12 through 18. Men's retreat coming February 22nd and 23rd. Women's retreat coming March 22nd and 23rd. Summer camp and conference. What are these things? Well, they're not, it's not just busy work. It's not just busy work. It's times afforded to you to build a network of friends who share the faith. You say, well, I got enough to do just trying to figure out who's in my own church. Well, yeah, but you need to broaden your vision. I can tell you right now this morning without disclosing names and so on, there are some people in some of our sister churches who are hurting really, really bad. Their health insurance is in jeopardy. Their health is already in the dumper. And they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. You say, well, let their church take care of that. Really? Is that brotherly love? Say, well, what I don't know won't hurt me. Yeah, but you should know. How are you going to know unless you have interaction? There are people in some of our other churches that are losing their homes because of the economic crisis in which our nation finds itself and they have lost their jobs. And again, You read the opening chapters of the book of Acts. People lost their homes and what did they do? What did the church do? They pulled their resources and took care of those people. So this is not a little task when I say love the brethren and make that part of your resolution. Number three, resolve to take positive steps to resist, <coughs> resist, Conformity to the world. This is not simply a problem for young people. It is a problem we all face because we want to be liked. We want to fit in. But the gospel of grace drew us out of the world's damning philosophies and actions. And God calls us to live separated and holy lives. Let me read it for you. Therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercies. Now this is application. Paul, written by Paul. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. Romans 12, 
verse 1 and 2. And I like Philip's translation here. Listen to this. It, it just, it'll cut you right to the heart. Here's what it says. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let, God's, let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, that it meets all His demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. That's what the text is saying. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Now, isn't that the battleground for all of us? I don't think that any true believer sets out in his or her thinking saying, well, Christian or no, I'm going to live as worldly as I can. I don't think we do that. No, we take seriously this exhortation and that of verse 14 of our text. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 1, 14-70. It's in Paul, it's in Peter, it's in the Word of God. Truth is, most of us think that we're doing a decent job of living a sanctified life for God. We seldom see our own sin, and when we do, the devil is quick to help us excuse it by using what I call the comparison scale. The comparison scale is us saying, well, I may be doing this and that, but you. That's what we do. But you is how we exonerate ourselves. By comparing what we think of as a rather harmless behavior to others and their way of doing things, and we come out smelling pretty good. We come out smelling pretty holy in our own eyes. Verse 17, however, tells us, this is in our text, that God does not judge you on someone else's behavior. Here's what it says. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. You know what Peter's saying? He's saying, forget the other guy. How are you living the separated life? The world will squeeze you into its mold ever so gently, ever so unknowingly. It will feel so natural, so right, so harmless that you will be making more excuses for your conduct than reformation. Be alert. Be, be diligent in the fight against allowing the world to squeeze you into its mold. And then last of all, and I save the best for last. I save the most important for last. Because if you do number four, you will do also one through three. Here's the last. Resolve to have the Bible and its teaching, listen now, as your final, full, sufficient authority in your life for faith, what you believe, and practice what you do. Part of the ease with which the world keeps its hooks in us is through the false assumption that man knows best to how to solve his problems. You don't need God. You just need to connect with the right man or woman. We depend on the experts. Got a health issue? Ding-a-ling-a-ling, -ling, call the doctor. Having financial issues? Ding-a-ling-a-ling, -ling, make an appointment to see the banker or the person at the credit union. Suffering from depression? Call the psychologist. Difficulty with an unruly child? Call the social worker. 
For every ailment that plagues the human condition, society has its own answers. Now I can tell you from working on many committees in government and with the agencies in Lapeer, that the world works, listen to me now, it works hard to solve these ills as they see them. They are not sitting on their hands. There's committees all through our county working on all these kinds of problems. Marriage problems, unruly kids, school problems, uh, star works. I see her nodding her head. She works, that's her clientele. In some ways, that's the clientele of the pregnancy center where our ladies work. But here's the thing. For them, education is their mantra, and they think they know the solutions, or if they don't know them, they can find them. You just got to research a little more, dig a little deeper. They are thinking, yeah, but their thoughts are not God's thoughts. They are doing. They are. But the activity is totally devoid of the Creator's wisdom. Now listen, if I want to buy a new appliance for my kitchen, I'm going to talk to an appliance repairman to find out the most reliable refrigerator on the market. I'm going to do that. I think that's a fair use of man's wisdom. He's got the experience. I don't. And I'm not going to be able to find that in the Bible. Let's see. Refrigerator. Hmm. It's not there. But, and here's very important. If I want to know how to cool the heat of a tongue set on fire from hell, I'm going to consult God. If I want to know how to save or improve my marriage, I'm going to read God's Word. If I want to learn how to discipline my children and restore sanity and sobriety to my family, I'm going to listen to what the Bible has to say. And even here we can see, if we're honest, how much the world <laughs> influences us. It'll take a concerted resolution to trust the Bible over the alleged wisdom of men. I say alleged because when they get into the realm of human nature and how that functions, they don't know a lot. Paul puts it this way, and I'm reading from the ESV. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now he goes on. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey, not Freud, but Christ being ready to punish every disobedience. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. What's our job? It's to take our thoughts and make them captive to Christ. Captive to Christ. It used to be a slogan years ago for a Christian, well, Jesus is the answer. Well, He is in more ways than most believers anticipate. And if you're an unbeliever this morning to the unbelieving, the same holds true. You can devise your own thoughts of salvation. You can um, determine how you're going to enter heaven at death. Or, or you can ditch those argu arguments. You can ditch those arrogant opinions and believe Jesus, God's Son, when He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. And if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 8, verse 24. Okay, then the question comes, what did he claim to be? Here it is. I'll read it for you. I am the way. I am the truth. 
I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. That's his claim. And the best resolution you can make as an unbeliever for the new year is to believe God in whatever he says and then act upon it. Now we all wrestle with this. Even Christians wrestle with this. That's how much the culture and its wisdom is a part of our lives. We don't even wrestle with a lot of things. We just accept things as true because somebody wrote a paper on it. need to trust Christ. Say, well, I'll have to dig some in the Bible. Yeah, you will. But that's your job too, to be a student of the Word of God. I pray that these resolutions, just for a number, they'll transform your life for the new year. Lord, thank you for your Word. It's powerful, sharp, sharp sword. We're about to come into our communion service. Another 10 minutes. Pray your forgiveness for how much the world has uh, become a part of our thinking. It's been so um, gradual, so slippery that we haven't even thought about it. And even now, our spirit resists the truth of your word because it shames us and it confronts us and it calls on us to change. It calls on us to repent. We don't want to do that. We think we're pretty good where we're at, the way we are, yet we're not. We may be more like that church in, of Pergamum than we want to think. We've imbibed the philosophies of the culture. Turn us back to the book, the Bible, which is the Word of God, which is truth. You never lie to us. You always tell the truth. And if we put into practice the principles that you lay down in your Word, this will be indeed a grand and blessed year for each one of us. For that one here this morning that doesn't know you at all, they're still in the state of the rebellious nature they're still in the state of their sin. They love that and prefer that over anything we've talked about today about holiness or sanctified life. I pray that you'll come by your Holy Spirit today and just snatch them and bring them into your kingdom. Grant them the faith they don't have and the repentance that they don't want to do to give up their sin. And Lord, make them new creatures in Christ today. For your glory and their good, we pray these things. Amen.